Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. So I just uh, want to, oh, I'm your host, Stephen Pettigrew. I don't know why I always forget to say my name, but I have a very special guest here that I'm very excited about, a person whose uh, writings I have been engaged with for decades. Uh, I've read many of his papers. I've read many of his books. Um, I've read, I've watched just about all of his YouTube videos. Um, I want to welcome onto the program, uh, Dan. Oops. Well, it's great. Great. Dan Vogel, welcome to the program. Steve. <laughs> so we're here, and uh, I'm just so excited that you're on here, Dan. So welcome to the program. Um, you know, I we had a really great three-hour conversation on Saturday. Um, it was three about, hours? It, it was about three hours, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. So we had this uh, about three-hour conversation on Saturday. Um, you were gracious enough to agree to come onto my program. You had said that the first on December 17th, you were going to go on Mormon Stories, and then you'd come on my program. Well, the next day, after you did the four-hour, 21-minute, and 53-second interview on Mormon Stories, um, the next day, you and I were talking. And now, a few days later, we're now taping this. So um, very excited to have this gentleman on. Now, I've had Richard Bushman on. Now, I've had Dan Vogel. Yeah. That's awesome. So welcome. All right. Well, I guess, you know, one of the things we were talking about beforehand was uh, I want to get a little biographical with you. So I want to kind of let's just tell us a little bit about um, where you were born, some about your background, and then maybe about how you started engaging uh, the history of uh, the Book of Mormon and other things. Well, I, I am a sixth generation Mormon, and it goes all the way back uh, with my great, great grandfather, Warren Foote, all the way back to the New York era of Mormonism, and they followed Joseph Smith to Ohio, and then to uh, Missouri, and then to Nauvoo, and uh, eventually uh, they traveled across the plains with Brigham Young and and established themselves in Utah. My grandmother, though, moved to uh, Los Angeles to be a maid in a rich Mormon family's mansion, I guess it was. Hmm. She was a maid with her sister, and then she met my uh, non-Mormon grandfather, <laughs> who got converted. And uh, then there's my father, and then there's me. So that's six generations. Uh, and my parents weren't really fanatical in the sense of attending church. They were what you might call hot and cold Mormons. You know, like sometimes they went and they were really gung-ho about the whole thing. And then other times they went inactive. So I got kind of a mixed uh, bag of things, you know. Um, uh, it wasn't too, I wasn't too staunch of a Mormon growing up myself. But I got really interested in my early or mid-teens in high school because uh, during that time there was this uh, uh, uh Christian Campus Crusade, mm -hmm. I think that's what it was called. Yep. Uh, and there was a lot of Christians running around my campus preaching and things. And they would say, oh, you're a Mormon? You're a member of a cult. And they would tell me all the ways I was wrong. And I didn't know anything about my own faith, really. Mm -hmm. And I go, uh, well, I'll, let me uh, research this and I'll come back. And we were debating, you know, the, you know, typical 
things like is there a god one god or three gods you know that kind of thing or baptism is essential to salvation or isn't it you know um and i would all you know introduce the book of mormon and we'll we would debate about the book of mormon and finally i well i started reading in order well, to answer these questions just, just real quick I, I just want to know because this is where right your ahead. world and my world interact with each other yeah yeah so you're right in the middle like this is big time born again movement stuff yeah you, you have i mean this is a really big time this is about the time my parents were involved in the charismatic renewal movement there was a lot of exciting things going on in in my world if you will and uh, the there was a uh, very aggressively people doing the born again stuff even um the editor of skeptic magazine Michael Shermer, right around this time, became a born-again Christian. Um, so yeah. um, what was it like? What was that world like, engaging them? Um, well, they would walk around campus, and they would come to class carrying their Bibles and uh, have a big cross on their chest, you know, like a necklace, you know, with a cross hanging there. And uh, and it was quite, uh, it was in the, in the um, uh, early 70s. And Vietnam was a subject also at the time. And uh, there was uh, not just Christians. There was also a, a, one of the kids was a Jehovah's Witness. Sure. And he would walk around carrying his version of the Bible. And so there was a lot of interaction about politics and religion and, you know, debating things. And that's when I really got uh, interested in studying my own faith you know, as, as a young Mormon. And, and of course, I was just born into it and defending what, what, what I was supposed to defend as a uh, Mormon, young Mormon kid. I wasn't going to church at the time, and I certainly wasn't going to seminary, you know, in classes before school. Uh, that came uh, later in my, in 10th grade, I started going back to church and studying. And um, my, Mormon grandmother happened to live near us during this time, and I would go to her apartment, uh, which she lived near my best friend's apartment, and we'd go there and visit her, and she would teach us about how to respond to, um, you know, uh, challenges to our faith, and because she she had been uh, a, a missionary, um, a stake missionary. And she had all the books and tools and things that she would loan me. And excuse me, uh, I have to get a drink. So I started studying, you know, proof, proof text and memorizing scriptures. And actually, I had read the New Testament before I even read the Book of Mormon all the way through. <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, Pardon me. Um, You're just talking about how grandma was schooling you on how to. Uh, yeah. Know. So I come back and I would be debate back and forth. And then my mother said, well, why don't you, it's time that you probably go to a church, you know, since you're studying so much about the faith. Mm -hmm. And so I started going to church and there was a lot of uh, people there ready to embrace me. And, and um, uh, it was, it was like a family, a second family in a way. My family life wasn't all that great. And so I kind of gravitated towards it right away and started going to seminary. And, and then uh, the next step was to go on a mission. 
So I went on a mission to England, Birmingham, England. And when I was there, I studied as much as I could. Uh, before I went on my mission, though, I, I had eventually read the Book of Mormon, of course, <laughs> and many times and read a lot of Bruce R. McConkie and Joseph Fieldney Smith materials. Okay. So I was kind of on the fundamentalist edge of, you know, end of Mormonism, very conservative uh, views of Mormonism. I had not very sophisticated uh, version, really. Um, on my mission, I happened, towards the end of my mission, I happened to hear about a Reverend Cuthbert, and he was a notorious anti-Mormon, and he would put out uh, tape recordings of himself, you know, arguing against various Mormon uh, principles. One, you know, and he would talk about uh, the moon men, prophecy of Justin. Justin said the moon was inhabited kind of stuff. And um, there was changes in the revelations and things like that. So I went to visit him because I was curious. And he, while I was there, he happened to mention uh, that he had been to Salt Lake City, the capital of Mormonism. And he was real uh, proud about that. And that he had gone and visited the Tanners. And he asked me if I knew about the Tanners. And I go, no, I, I've never heard of them. And he goes, yeah, they, they put out lots of materials. Even BYU professors get, get their stuff because it's so rare, you know, the photocopies of documents and things. And, and I hadn't heard anything like that uh, as a missionary. And so I determined when I got home, I would look the Tanners up myself and see what they were all about. <clears throat> and all I can remember is that he said, yeah, they, they uh, have a house, the Modern Microfilm Company, and there's a sign out front and it's across the street from a baseball field. So the first summer I got home, I got my best friend and we got in the car and we took off. And uh, when we got to Salt Lake City, uh, we, we're asking, we didn't know where the baseball field was. And we were asking people, where's the baseball field? You know, and they go over here, go down that street, turn left, the baseball field. So we didn't know where exactly they lived. And so we drove around the baseball field until, well, there's a sign, you know, and we went in and I was looking around. Uh, it, it was Sandra Tanner was there. I didn't see Gerald. I saw Sandra Tanner was running the bookstore and it was in that front room of their house. And I'm looking at their books and I'm talking to Sandra, kind of annoying her with my true believer uh, position on various topics. And uh, finally I bought a few books and then all the way home. So which ones did you buy? Just do oh, you remember? Off oh yeah, I, I go. Uh, well, give me that shadow of reality. That's your main, what's your main text? I asked her, what's your main thing where I can just read and get most of what you talk about? Because they have so many books. And it, she said, oh, it's a shadow of reality. So I bought that. And then she said, these three volumes of Case Against Mormonism is a longer version of what's in that book. So I took those and it was, they were talking about things I knew nothing about you know, and these were my introductions to a lot of different subjects. 
So my, I made my friend drive my, it was my car. I, you drive home, I'm going to start reading. <laughs> I would start reading and talking to him about, oh, look at that, you know, look at this, look at that, you know. And so when I got home, I was more trying to be an apologist for a while. And I was researching all the topics that they brought up. And I got onto some, you know, apologetic kinds of materials that defended Mormonism against some of the principles. Then I, um, decided I would get a hold of some of their main sources that they were using, like Reverend Walters mm -hmm. and Mike Marquardt. I, I first got con in contact with Wesley Walters and started talking to him about uh, the first vision. And it was about the time that uh, he was debating uh, Richard Bushman in dialogue on, on the first vision and the revivals. And um, also the 1826 trial, I was reading his materials. He had put out a couple of pamphlets on things and published some uh, articles in other sources like the Journal of Pastoral Practice. Um, so one thing led to the next in other words, and I decided it was still in my early 20s that this was not, uh, I, I didn't really believe as a regular believer. And but I couldn't talk about it for the longest time out loud, you know, around my friends. So you know? when you're, 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 so you're actually engaging, I mean, you're, you're, you're actually talking to the Reverend Walters and, yeah. and all this kind of stuff. So, but you're still, you would, you're still a member in good standing. You're still a believer at this point, but you're maybe getting well, more sophisticated I'm, in your beliefs or how, how would you I describe your evolution? I am shifting out of it, becoming inactive again. Hmm. And, um, and how old were you about this time when this, but I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, during this same period, there were no other people outside the church that I could talk to that were former Mormons like there are today. Like there's a whole community of believers. And I just kind of went what they would say all the way of the world. And, you know, and I was not active and I wasn't behaving like a Mormon anymore. I was going to the university and just being uh, a non-Mormon in a way. But I met, I happened to keep on going to across the street to um, the Institute and I did meet a Mormon a girl that I married, but we, we, because we, we weren't uh, the most faithful Mormons anymore. We did get, I got excommunicated and, but I didn't go to the trial or anything. They just did it to, to me, put it that way. And they disfellowshipped her. So why, why would they have done that? What was their, their charge? More, more not living up, living okay. the rules, the standards. And, you know, I was doing whatever I wanted to do. Got it. <laughs> As, like a non-Mormon, because mm -hmm. in my mind I was, but I was still hanging around because I had no other friends but Mormons, you know. So uh, at any rate, we ended up getting a divorce about a year into it. And I was 20-ish, three, maybe four, somewhere around there when we got divorced. And then I was 
I decided at that time I would just come out and start talking about it. I didn't have anything to lose, you know. She was still somewhat of a believer, and uh, and I wasn't. So I started talking about it out loud, and I, so I lost all my Mormon friends right away. <laughs> and so I had nobody, and that's why I wish I had some sort of community, like there is a community right now, you know. Um, it would have been much easier, probably. Uh, working these things through. Um, oh, just okay. So you you get divorced. You lose yeah. all your friends. Yeah. Were you were you suffering depression or how how was your mental state no, at this time? I really don't. I, I'm not really troubled by those kinds of things like depression or anything. I'm pretty lucky that way. Yeah, you're very fortunate. Yeah. But but you do struggle and you have self doubts and um, things like that. Um, a lot later, if I jump ahead, when I when I was thirty one ish, right around the time my right after my father passed away, I did go to therapy, and the therapy helped me a lot. Um, there's a you know when you're in a, a all all encompassing community, and there's a lot of codependency in that community of you know not um, questioning not of wanting to um be yourself in other words you're you're more of a community minded person and you don't quit question the, anything out loud you don't buck the system you don't question the leaders you follow along or else the people like frown on you uh so there there is a price to pay emotionally by being in a, in, in a system like that. And then when you try to leave, there is a lot of emotional turmoil uh, readjusting to a new reality. So I just, I guess when I, when I ask you is, you know, so you, you're, you're, you're sitting in your car with all these materials you just got you from this Tanners and you're saying, look at this and look at that. I want to know what was like they call the, what broke your shelf? What was the one thing oh. that you encountered that was that oh. did it for you? It was. It would be probably the Book of Abraham. Okay. <laughs> you know, um, the Book of Abraham, the changes in the Revelations. You know, um, the Book of Mormon being so much like the Mound Builder myth. Uh, those those things that I've been writing on ever since. I I as a Mormon, I was very interested in Mormon history. A lot of people wonder, well, you know, you can leave the church, but you can't leave it alone kind of thing. And, and the, fu the funny thing is, is that, well, I I loved studying Mormon history. It's my heritage. <laughs> you know, more, I am still a Mormon by heritage. I'm sixth generation Mormon. So uh, I was very interested in studying Mormon history as a believer. And just because I stopped believing it doesn't mean I, I lost my interest in studying Mormon history. Mm -hmm. you know so and there's all i still have lots of questions about what exactly happened you know yeah and and i don't know what exactly happened i'm trying to find out still and i find it very interesting subject and i was talking to my friend Britt metcalf just the other night and he, he made a very good argument he goes well you know that's like saying to a classicist uh, well you don't believe in zeus so why do you study the romans so much <laughs> you know it's really a silly criticism 
Yeah, so I just want to just pull out oh. one of the books here that you co-edited with Brett Metcalf, <laughs> American Abrakafa. This is actually, I think, in the essays on the Book of Mormon series. I, I'd say this is my favorite one. I also like the Mormon Mavericks one, which I think is interesting because it tells and the green screen's messing up here. I know, folks. Oh, but this in, is you, a, you mean in that in that series of in, books? In this yeah. series of books, I this yeah, this one a very I, good series. It is, and and uh, and so and. Uh, you brought up Brent and I thought, oh, this is a good time to bring it. And you wrote two essays in this particular volume and you edited it. I noticed that um, you, you, this was the first one that you edited um, as well, Word The Word of God. God, which I actually only bought this maybe a year or two ago. This is my most recent addition to this particular collection. Um, so you are still engaged and you're very interested. This is the thing, folks. I find everything about the history of the restoration, the Mormonism, especially the early years. So the areas that you're most interested in, I'm most interested in as well, to be truly fascinating. Yes. And uh, this is a world that's familiar to me. And we can talk about that later, but I want to just talk a little bit about now. So now you're starting to, you're, you're in university um, and now you're, you're studying things. So just talk about how as a senior, you're actually asked to put together a, a Put together like a paper or a proposal about finding all these origin because you had brought talked about the mound builder stuff mm -hmm. that that was kind of like your first foray into this maybe just talk about how you got into that into that oh era. yeah well this i published my first book in 1986 as a senior in the university at the california state university at long beach i was going there and back then we had no internet there was no internet uh, in which to uh, communicate with people and maybe debate with people or disagree with people online about whatever subject. Uh, we used to write long letters, you know, to friends and uh, uh, other people interested in the topic, you know. And there, in my correspondence, I was corresponding with a friend that was still a believer. And they kept bringing up, well, Joseph Smith couldn't know this about uh, Mesoamerica. They were defending the limited Teowanapec theory uh, as uh, apologists. And you couldn't know, Joseph Smith couldn't have known this and couldn't have known that. And I, and I said to myself, well, well, let's find out what he could and could not know. So I wanted to co collect a bibliography an annotated bibliography of every book written about the Indians before 1830 and see what Joseph could and could not know. Then we'll discuss it. So I started looking at books and in, in those days you had to go through microfilms. You couldn't just go to Google, you know, you had to go to the library and spend endless amounts of hours uh, in all day, hours and hours of going through microfilms and microfish and microtext cards and going through various collections and, and uh, going through you know books uh, with the titles of books before 1830. And I would read the titles. And back then you're really lucky because they wrote these really long titles that told you everything in the book practically. <laughs> so I would just turn the pages of these, you know, volumes, you know, 30 volumes, you know of titles of books and year by year, you know, and look at the titles and I would write them down by hand because, uh, you know, I didn't have a laptop. 
<laughs> you know so I write the titles down and the number the number that that they appeared on the microfilm or microfiche and then I would go and look page by page and read these books written before 1830 about the Indians and try to figure out hey you know what these what are the views these people had about these Indians you know there was a few scholars also that have written uh, books on the Indian the white man's Indian and that's Burkhofer's book and some others that uh, uh, went through the same materials and I would write down all the books that they wrote they read or would cite in their books and I would collect this bibliography and I would write notes and keep notes and nice uh, important quotes after a while I'm going wow you know especially when I came on to the mound builder myth and how they thought the ancient uh, Americans used steel and uh, had had uh, spoke Hebrew and uh, and I started amassing this information and I, and I said you know I need to show this to somebody like my friend Wes Wallers and so I, I typed up all these quotes with just minimal connection, you know, uh, to introduce them. And I, you know, I, I don't know if it was 30 or 50 pages or something like that. <laughs> so I photocopied it, sent it off to my friend Wes and said, what do you think of this stuff? Uh, and he, unknown to me, he sent this to George uh, Smith, the president of Signature Books. And, and George Smith called me up at my mother's house. I was at my mother's house at this time. Uh, I had moved back in with them to uh, take care of my father who was ill. Um, so George called me up and said he wanted to publish it. And I was like, what? <laughs> it was a, I had no plans about publishing. I didn't even think of it. Uh, I said, well, well, let me rewrite this in the summer when I'm off a school and then I'll resubmit it uh, somewhat better and I did that and even after that I was as, as Susan Staker helped me uh, at Signature Books she was working with Signature Books at the time she helped me rewrite it and put it into shape and then we published it little monograph of Indian origins and the Book of Mormon you know real religious solutions from Columbus to Joseph Smith and that was my first pu uh, publication, you know, book. That was my first published book. And um, uh, I think it a, a, has a lot of valuable stuff in it still. It's online for anybody who wants to see it. Yeah, and I'm going to try to track me down a copy. Now, of course, you also did a, a YouTube video um, based yeah. on that as well. So if people want to check that out too, you could check that out, um, which I found to be very informative. You know, and, and just going back to, the intersection. It was an evangelical or a Christian minister yeah. that was the one that kind of got you on track to do to, to doing what you're doing. Yeah. That, well, that Wes and I used to have long phone conversations, you know, and we, we disagreed about certain things like evolution and how old the earth is and things like that. Um, and uh, but we had this interest in Mormon history. And, and what I loved about Wes was that he would actually get in his car and go and drive to these places and look for these documents. And he actually found some of them. Uh, 
and he would write about him and he tried to be as objective and scholarly as possible, uh, which I, I really enjoyed. So we, we could connect on that level, you know. Was it, what, for a couple of questions, just because this is so interesting to me, um, what kind of person was he and did he ever try to um, witness to you or try to share the gospel with you from his well, viewpoint? As it turned out, I went and spent, uh, I, it was at least a week I spent with him. And he's, he was such a generous and he was a, a gentleman. He was, he was a Presbyterian minister. And I went to his church and listened to him preach and because uh, it was right across the street from his house. His house was owned by the church. He had this huge old house. It's not there anymore. But it was it had like it was two stories, old wooden house, and it had an attic in it. And in the attic, he had uh, uh, books that he ha had bought a whole a string of photocop. This guy, David. Um, I forget his name, but he used to uh, be a publisher in Mormon, early Mormon documents, sort of like the Tanners. And um, I can't remember his last name, but he had all of this stuff up there and he, that let me just go right through, rummage through it. And he had his own photocopy machine and I just photocopied tons and tons of stuff. He had an office that had like four or five uh, file cabinets full of stuff. Um and he was very generous and very courteous and uh, helped, helped me along. He, he actually helped me and Mike Marquardt. He, he bought us a, um, our first microfilm reader. Oh. He got some money from George Smith uh, to help him in his research. And he shared that with me and Mike Marquardt. He helped. I came home from work one day and on my doorstep where were these boxes and it was my first computer and Wes had bought him he had got this deal from oh some manufacturer it was an apple and at these times <laughs> apples weren't so go good back then either but they were better than a typewriter mm. you know and I was going how am I going? I don't know anything about computers. And I was looking into buying a computer and they were so expensive back then. But he gave me my first computer and I, I wrote Indian Origins on a typewriter okay. <laughs> and photocopied it. You know, and then this is my first Apple uh, computer and I was using that for several years. And then finally got the, the IBMs came around and it was much, they were much more sophisticated but you still had just a blue screen uh, green screen you know now there are just so many worlds uh wow. far further along than that so what I, i'm just curious one i want to get back to if he tried to convert you now he's a presbyterian oh, so maybe he didn't did he think try that. yeah um not strongly okay not, not strongly he, he wasn't overbearing or anything because that would probably have ruined our relationship in Got a it. way you know but uh we would Every now and then it would, he, he wouldn't like testify to me or anything and come on to me very, real, real strongly about, you know, bearing his testimony or anything like that. But he would let it be known what he believed. Okay. So, and I'm a, pretty, I'm a pretty tolerant person. I, I let people have their space and they're on their journey, own journeys. And I, I don't try to force my 
uh, views onto other people either because everybody's moving along and I'm just an information guy, basically. So I'm just, just to kind of wrap up uh, Reverend Walters, because it's an yeah. interesting story and I find this to be fascinating, is um, what got him interested in Mormonism in the first place? Oh, I'm not, I'm not really sure about that. It's been so many years since we've talked. Uh, I don't know exactly what got him onto it, but he was pretty dedicated because he, he was sort of like me uh, in that he would spend his vacations traveling around looking for these documents while, you know, his wife was visiting the relatives and he would get in a car and go off to another state to look for some uh, documents. So just to be, I, I want to make sure I'm getting everything right about him. He's the one that um, came up with the idea that the revivals didn't correspond with the time of the first vision. But yeah. is he also the one that found the, the court records? Yes, he's, the, he's okay. the one that found, found the court records in the basement of uh, Chenango County Courthouse that were being ruined because water, it was in the basement and water was destroying the documents. So he saved them. He saved the documents in the nick of time, really. Fascinating. And, and, and just, just a great story. I'm glad you, you shared, shared some more about his story because uh, I just find him to be an interesting person. And when did he pass away? Oh, he, he, oh. It has to be maybe 20 years, okay. really. Um, and <clears throat> uh, he, had, he had a genetic problem with the tendon, tendons in your body uh, not functioning correctly all over his body. But, you know, you have tendons in your heart, and he died from that, from the heart, ten, you know, the tendons on the valves in the heart he died suddenly he was in the hospital and then he just died suddenly um and he had a son I, a son and a daughter i think it was that had a similar situation and they had died at young ages um but wes was uh, it, when i was with him he 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 jumped in the car with me and started <laughs> driving all over the place and he took me to oh i think that's the mound where the kinderhook plates were Wow. He took me there and he took to me to the Cahokia Mound outside of, um, across the uh, Mississippi from um, St. Louis. We went up in the St. Louis Arch and uh, he was a great guy. Wow, that's, that's great. Now, did you, did you get to Zelf's Mound? Did you find that yourself too? Or? No, no, we, we, we didn't go to the Zelf Mound. Okay. It was only where he thought he the kinderhook plates have been dug. I remember that. So, I missed him. I missed him for many years after he died, shortly after he died. For man, well, you had the close relationship with him. I mean, he really helped get you started, man. And, yeah, and, and he would call me up all the time. Oh, you know. Yeah. Wow. Great, great story. So, um, we're talking about, so you come out with your first book and then you're asked then, uh, you're then at a relatively young age, then um, editing this book, um, Essays of Mormon, The Word of God. Um, and so you're, you're jumped into this world. You have this relationship with signature books basically now for how many decades now? <laughs> yeah, probably 35 Three. years, probably yeah. 35 to 40 years. It's been a good, really good relationship. 
the people that work there are really good and I really have a lot of confidence in their abilities. Yep. Yeah, they seem to there's their they put out <clears throat> top notch quality products. I've read a ton of their materials um, and I find them to be just a great asset. And it's just wonderful that you've had this relationship with them all these years. And it's interesting because you kind of took a different path than what a lot of academics took. You, you, yeah. you're, you're not somebody who's been married to an institution. You've kind of done your own thing. Maybe just describe and explain what, why you took that course. Well, uh, I, I really wanted to study and write about Mormon history. And, and when I was going through the university to get my bath, bachelor's degree it was taking a lot of time away from what I wanted to do and, and I just had this urge to get to the Mormon subject and and learn as much as I could as fast as I could and <clears throat> the I saw that the academic thing would probably soak up a lot of that time and distract me from what I really wanted to do and I couldn't have done what I what I've done without uh, George Smith and signature books. It and it, so it was kind of a mutual beneficiary uh, kind of you know situation and relationship. They're all retiring now themselves, and from from signature books, it's being taken over by really capable hands, you know. Also, so it's going to live on. I you know as long as I can foresee anyway, yeah. but um, I'm really fortunate to have been uh, more or less sponsored uh, by them and George Smith, the, the Smith Pettit Foundation, which was another uh, company that George Smith founded that sponsors a lot of scholars. And they sponsored me and uh, over the years to do various projects. Um, and I've enjoyed it immensely. Yes. So I, that's sort of like why I didn't go into teaching. I did get a degree and I, the kind of courses I took were to uh, enable myself to teach high school at least in social studies and not just history. So I had a little breadth into so, uh, sociology and psychology and uh, social studies and anthropology and things like that not just u.s history um anyway so i i try to learn as much as i can about all sorts of the other subjects to bring to, it to bear on mormonism as much as i can um yeah it's very interesting uh, uh dan about just the history of you took a different course uh in your life uh you're not following the institutional academic thing now i will tell you there are some critics that kind of look down on you yeah um and kind of poo-poo your work a little bit because of that maybe just kind of respond to that well the the critics of course are you're talking about our apologists who try to use an argument of authority mm -hmm. and uh this argument of authority is really a, a logical fallacy uh, you're supposed to respond to my w actual work and um we're the focus should not be on the author and to try to poison the well so to speak mm -hmm. um but i think the my work speaks for itself i have a pretty good reputation i've i got have six uh, awards for my writings 
uh, from very from Mormon based historical societies, not necessarily you know American historical societies, but Mormon based historical societies that know the subject quite well, you know. So I I take their awards as uh, probably a, an indication that I shouldn't be uh, brushed aside so easily. Yep. So um, I guess now. You, you're, you've, you've obviously very much established. You have, you really did a lot of stuff with the Book of Mormon. Um, you did the Joseph Smith biography, uh, and of course, you're doing, you've done some stuff with the Book of Abraham. So you, you've covered all these bases. Now, before we get into like individual topics, I just want to ask, what, when you decided to tackle a particular subject, uh, what made you decide to tackle that particular one? What, what was your interest, initial interest in su tackling some of these subjects? And then we can kind of flush it out with these various things. Well, mostly it's, well, like I mentioned before, the first book was triggered by mm -hmm. a response to my friend saying, Joe Smith couldn't know this or yeah. that. And I go, well, what, what could he know? And so, and I'm, so I'm curious myself. Okay. And I pick subjects uh, that I'm personally interested in also. I've turned down subjects that I'm not interested in, uh, you know, so I want to know the answers just as much as you know maybe somebody else out there. I'm I'm just learning as I'm going. And so, and signature books gives you a lot of freedom to do that. Yes, they sometimes they have proposed subjects to me that I haven't been interested in, but most of the time I'm interested. If it especially if it deals with Joseph Smith and the origins of Mormonism. When I went through the university. Uh, I usually took the first part of every subject, <laughs> you know, like the history of, um, uh, well, I was interested in the Jacksonian uh, period of American history, but when I took um, uh, the history of, um, um, well, I say Soviet Union or Russia, it was the first part that I was mostly, how did, it, you know, they got get started. started and how did it get started? How did, how did things get started? That's usually what piques my interest is, how did this all get started? Uh, you know, whatever subject. So um, uh, I have to want to know the answer. And sometimes I don't know how it's going to turn out myself. When I'm writing about the biography of Joseph Smith, I don't know. How, what I'm going to, how I'm going to come down on whatever controversial issue there is. And a lot of times some people ask me what my views are and I will, and I will frankly just tell them I'm, I don't know. I haven't uh, researched that, you know, <laughs> I, I, but I might have a tendency for one view over another, you know, cause I, everybody has biases. I have biases. Natural. I'm a naturalist. I have naturalistic biases. Um, so actually, so I spent, I've spent the last four years doing Joseph Smith's middle years from 1831 to 1839. And a lot of it, I was learning just like anyone else. I, it's not like I know everything. So I'll decide to write about it. You really can't know everything until you write about it, <laughs> you know? And that's why I like writing is because writing is learning you know you're working it out and you're trying to see how when you start getting a larger picture 
you start um, being able to see things that you couldn't see until you had more information and you, and you have to gather that first. So I, I guess I want to kind of enter into an area that I find very fascinating. And when Christopher Thomas and I, um, Christopher Thomas, who wrote a blurb for your book of Abraham book, you actually haven't met him yet, but hopefully we can facilitate something soon. But, you know, him and I have conversations about the early days of the church. So the starting point, right? And I tell people, yeah. I said, on April 6, 1830, if I go into that room, where they're founding the church, supposedly, uh, right? You, you, there's some controversial in the country, you know, about where it was founded. Well, let's just say I'm in the standard narrative and I'm in that room. And in that room, I'm with other evangelical born again Christians. I said the other day, some are spirit filled. You said most are spirit filled <laughs> um, Christians. And, and so I, I always like to give the analogy that, you know, when they talk about the early days of Christianity, they say, well, Christianity was a Jewish sect. It was all initially Jewish people in Christianity. And I always like to say, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on April 6th was, or the Church of Christ at the time, um, was full of evangelical born-again Christians. Uh, my people, I would feel very comfortable in that room. So maybe let's just talk a little bit about that. Well, there, the problem with the are Mormons Christians question mm. And in my mind, yes, they're they're Christians. It doesn't matter even if you disagree with their uh, doctrines. The doctrines do, don't determine whether you're a Christian or not. I mean, there was never a Christian church. There was a, a lot of Christians. There was a lot of different Christian churches. There wasn't one Christianity. And in the in the beginning of Christ, Christ, the Christian movement. Um, they were just meeting at the synagogue until they got kicked out, you know, <laughs> until the until the Jews kicked them out because they were too different, you know. Um, so there wasn't like, oh, you don't believe the Orthodox Christianity, so you're not really a Christian. I mean, Paul would try to correct people on various beliefs, you know, like, you know, if there's no resurrection, you know. The, the, the uh, Corinthians said, don't, don't believe in a resurrection. He doesn't go, you're not a real Christian. <laughs> he tries to correct them and he debates with them. Um, so even if you disagree with the, what the Mormons believe, it doesn't, in my view, it doesn't make them unchristian. They're, they're not real Christians, you know. Uh, they, to me, they're real Christians and they may have different beliefs than you, even if they're incorrect beliefs, but they're still Christians. So, and, and they view themselves as Christians. That's the important thing to me. They think they're Christians. They, and there's no, and a lot of people try to get me to come down on Mormons of not, not being Christians. And I, and I tell them, it's not my job to decide who the real Christians are. <laughs> That's, <right. laughs> That's not my job. Nor should it be the job of any person that's right not, that's not that's not their if you believe in god that's god's god makes that call <laughs> yeah I, i'm i'm not going to decide who are the real christians that's not my job i'm a historian that's right. okay and to me the most important thing is that they believe they're christians they talk about christ they believe christ you know so they're christian in my view they're christians and there's really uh not all the that much difference 
you know, there's no test of faith in my uh, vocabulary here. Uh, that's not what I'm all about. I'm not trying to prove Mormons aren't Christians and that there's some how some kind of bad people and uh, th that kind of thing. So I don't know if I answered that your question, but well, I was just kind of just talking about the context of um, the world, the, the that group of people that initially founded the church would have been considered um, very much evangelical in their mindset. Yeah. And then, of course, you have not long after that, the Rigdon followers of Sidney Rigdon, who are with the um, the Campbellite movement, which is another type of evangelical movement. Um, so it's just, I guess what I'm trying to get across to the audience, and of course, many of you already know this, is the fact that this was a church that was founded by Christians. Um, this was yeah. not something that was foreign to Christianity. And people say, well, the people, the reason why people join cults or whatever is that they don't know the Bible. This is like some of my literalist family and friends would say this. I say, no, 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 you understand. I said, the reason why Mormonism took off was because people were very familiar with the Bible. And the Book of Mormon actually helped provide many of the answers to the questions that the Bible did not address. And that's how it resonated. It was a highly literate population of Bible believers who knew the Bible very well, better than most modern day Christians do. And it was part of the culture. And so the Book of Mormon actually, in their mind, actually very well complemented the Bible. And so I think that it has to be understood that it was actually Bible-believing Christians, not all, of course, but the, they were all basically Bible-believing Christians that embraced the Book of Mormon, embraced uh, the, church, the church at that time. Yeah. Well, uh, there, there was a struggle in the 19th century and at other times too about what kind of restoration should you have? Should, should it be just a restoration of uh, the form or the substance? It should, should you restore the Christian church um, just in form and belief and doctrine and get rid of all the Catholic kind of innovations and make it more pure in in its form or should it also include in a spirit field and include miracles and uh speaking in tongues and have uh you know the instead of it being the form of godliness or whatever it had it would have the power thereof to take a, a passage from the bible and a lot of what happens with in natural, uh, um, it's a natural thing that happens when you become very charismatic. There is a, a danger in other um, charismatic groups causing it to splinter off. And that was Joseph Smith's fault. Or, or problem with the um, having charisma. Yeah, and so the need, it's almost, you see this pattern in all churches where you have like revivals yeah. and stuff like that. At some point there feels this bureaucratic need or something to institutionalize it. So, yeah. that, it's, so that you can take control of it and not let it get out of hand in their minds. Exactly. Uh, so a lot of uh, people, uh, veer away from 
actual having, having charisma because it's kind of dangerous uh, to keeping control of the situation. And that's what Joseph did early on. And that's a fascinating story. You know, I want to talk about Mark Staker. Of course, he talks about how Black Pete gives the history of that and a lot of the movement that was going on. And then they felt the need to tamper it down. Interestingly enough, Brigham Young starts come, comes around and starts speaking in tongues, and that seemed to be acceptable. Um, so you have this, they're trying to work it out like, okay, Black Pete took it too far. Maybe it's because he was a, a Black and they didn't like that. But then Brigham Young brings in the tongues. And Joseph said, this is the pure Adamic language. So you had this play, this interplay between trying to allow there to be the power there, but then to try to rein it in as best you can. Um, so it's, and so you have early on in the church, it appears that Joseph is grappling with this. And then he kind of not only institutionalized it, but he pretty much then puts himself in the position as being the essential sole authority when it comes to these things as the prophet. Would that be fair to say? Yes, exactly. So, um, <laughs> so just now that we're, since we're actually in this period of time, you had mentioned about how you're working on the middle years, 1831 to 1839, and you've spent four years on this, and you've been commissioned by Signature Books to uh, talk about this period. Just maybe give a little preview of some of the things that you've found or just hint towards some of, you know, you know, I know you haven't published, so I don't want you to give, give away too much information, but maybe just give some general observations about this period, 1831 to 1839 that you've come across. Well, things really changed for Joseph Smith when he moves to Ohio. I mean, in New York, he had followers and they were like scattered around. Um, but in Ohio, they were concentrated in Kirt the Kirtland, Ohio area. And that gave him a lot of political power right away. And uh, the non-Mormons right around were worried uh, that uh, the Mormons would take over, you know, through voting and voting as a block. And uh, they'd have a lot of political and economic power. And that's one thing that got them into trouble both in Ohio and Missouri. So and then and that's the period we're covering, 1831 to 1839 when Joseph Smith leaves Missouri. So for a time there was two headquarters and um, that posed a lot of problems as well. But Missouri was the Zion, even though Joseph Smith was located most of these years in Ohio. And he made several trips to Missouri to organize the church there. One of the major themes that runs through this period, though, is the institutionalizing of Mormonism. Because it began as a, a charismatic movement, it was uh, liable to splinter with, into fragments because other people had charisma also. They started getting revelations. And that challenged Joseph Smith's leadership. And so the story is mostly concerned uh, during this period with Joseph Smith maneuvering, getting revelations, uh, organizing in order to control charisma so that it didn't uh, challenge the institution. So that's a major theme that runs through the book. That's what uh, my book is titled, uh, if you recall, um, Charisma Under Pressure. That's what I've called it. It could change titles with the publisher. You never know. 
but charisma under pressure. And that, that kind of alludes to uh, the writings and uh, research of a sociologist named Max Weber, a German or Austrian sociologist, Max Weber. Uh, he wrote famously a treatise on From Charisma to Institution. And it doesn't apply only to religious groups. It applies to almost any institution that gets started, especially with a, a, a leader involved. So the very predictable ways in which in, these institutions will develop in order to stay together, if they don't develop along certain lines, they usually splinter and fragment into smaller groups. So, Anyway, my book is about mostly about the maneuvering and what the meaning of the revelations are and what Joseph Smith is doing to hang on to uh, his sole authority in the church. In midway through the story, there's a little episode called Zion's Camp. And in 1833, the uh, Missouri church lost uh, its place in Jackson County, Missouri, and they got kicked out of Jackson County, Missouri. And so there was a, this uh, huge concern about regaining the Holy Land of Zion. It was like the Jews losing their Jerusalem, you know. So everything was tied to this Zion, just Smith's prophecies and authority. And so there was a lot of stress on Joseph Smith to try to obtain this land again. And one of his uh, uh, methods was to uh, do it by force, more or less. Uh, he gathered up 205 different uh, Mormons from around the area. Uh, some, they got armed, some with guns, some with other kinds of weapons. And they marched uh, like 800 miles from Ohio to Missouri in order to forcibly move the Mormons back onto their land and to protect them uh, while they were there. It's quite more complex than that uh, with the uh, officials didn't quite like an army coming into their state, <laughs> you know? So there's a lot of negotiating, but the main principle was to um, have the governor and the militia, state militia help um, restore the Mormons to their lands. And then the governor said that he could not legally have a standing army in, a, in the state. So Zion's camp was supposed to provide that standing army to maintain the Mormon hold on Jackson County, Missouri, on the lands that they uh, owned. But the they found that the opposition was a little larger than just with estimated or encountered on and they could not do it by force and it would have been a bloodshed and joseph smith uh disbanded zion's camp and that became a huge controversy in the church and a lot of people a lot of mormons began questioning joseph smith's inspiration um so that that when Joe Smith and Zion's camp returned to Ohio, there was a lot of um, 
you know, uh, apostasy. There was uh, questioning of uh, uh, whether they were being led by revelation or not. And so Joseph Smith uh, began to uh, uh, receive revelations, began to uh, maybe distract the situation by uh, organizing the church. So this, this would be the failure of charisma and where that Max Weber talks about. And what, what happens when prophecy fails is, a, is another uh, study by other uh, socio, sociological minded historians. What, what happens when prophecy fails? So either you explain the prophecy, you uh, distract from the prophecy and say why there's a delay that you couldn't delay or the members weren't faithful enough to, to get the Zeland design back. Uh, so anyway, my book is about all the different things Joe Smith does to recover from this crisis. And one of them is organizing the church and then predicting uh, a delay in the millennium and uh, sharing of a sharing of authority. So he organizes the hierarchy in more in more earnest effort to organize the hierarchy. This was 1834 when Zion's camp uh, it was May 1834 when Zion's camp went to Missouri and in June by the time they came back and Joseph Smith started um, organizing the hierarchy. First, he and Oliver Cowdery worked together on a history of the church that revealed something that most uh, uh, Mormons didn't know. And that was that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in May 1829 had been ordained by an angel to the Aaronic or lesser priesthood and that shortly after they were ordained to, to the Melchizedek or higher priesthood. And um, this uh, also was a time when, uh, well, so they, in, in ordaining, in having been ordained by angels, they were claiming a, uh, an authority, a chain of authority. And once you have a, like a hands-on ordination instead of a charismatic concept of authority, you now have a chain that can't be broken. And if uh, usurpers try to break off, they break the chain and they have to uh, explain why they're breaking the chain or uh, claim some sort of other kind of authority that is more difficult uh, to break off of than just claiming some revelation or, or uh, Pentecostal type authority. So as you can see, it's quite complex. It gets quite complex really fast here. And he also built, starts sharing authority and he organizes the 12 apostles and uh, first presidency in order to share this authority. So it's quite complex to try to try to uh, lay it down right here. That's, I, I would suggest getting the book when it comes out because there's a lot to grasp there. But 
Well, during this period of time also, um, this is the period of time where Sidney Rigdon in, comes into the picture in this time frame. And so maybe just talk a little bit about what Sidney's role played, especially in those early years of the church and, uh, and during this time. Well, um, Sidney Rigdon was converted uh, in 1830 and went to New York to meet Joseph Smith. And he met Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith was taken by Rigdon right away because Rigdon had broken off from the Campbellite organization, and the Campbellites believed in a restoration also, but not with uh, charismatic authority or any kind of gifts of tongues or uh, healing, things like that. Um, but Rigdon wanted a restoration of spiritual gifts, uh, a restoration of the actual church that existed in early Christianity. Uh, and Joseph Smith seemed to provide that uh, kind of restoration that Rigdon was anticipating and looking forward uh, for. So he went, he got converted, he was converted to Joseph Smith's um, gospel and uh, Joseph, Joseph Smith was uh, um, already planning to move to Ohio because of the large amount of converts that had been there. Nearly all of Rigdon's congregation were converted and other uh, former Campbellites around the area were converted uh, in mass almost, hundreds. And so that shifted the power of authority to Ohio and Joseph Smith had no choice really, but to move there and be with his converts and to nurture his church and organize it and keep it um, from splintering because they were very, very course, uh, charismatic in Northern Ohio. They were a little too uh, charismatic for just mistaste. And he went there and he reined that in right away. That was his major concern. And he, he more or less labeled some of the extreme uh, charismatic behavior in Northern Ohio as, uh, you know, Satan inspired, you know. Um, so uh, anyway, Rigdon became, um, because of Cowdery's absence in Missouri, uh, Rigdon became Joseph's like right-hand man and spokesman. And, and Rigdon was a great uh, orator uh, in the Camelite movement before he became a Mormon. So I, I, I don't know what else you want to know about. Oh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And then just to kind of tie in one last aspect of charismatic um, aspects in this period of time is that they are visited. I don't know if you touch on this in your book, uh, but maybe we could just briefly touch on the Irvingites. Uh, from from uh, Europe, from Europe, uh, Europe. Coming, yeah, well, coming and talking with them. Yeah, they, they, they yeah, they went to an uh, exchange with the Urbanites. But the important thing about that is that Rigdon was a charismatic uh, Campbellite, let's say, and he wanted more than just a restoration of the form. He wanted the restoration of the power thereof. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that there's a lot of groups around Europe and America that were anticipating this kind of charismatic restoration. Um, and I wrote a book on it. It was my second book in 1988. 
called uh, Religious Seekers in the Advent of Mormonism. And seekers were those who were seeking this more charismatic restoration or a restoration of uh, new apostles being sent. It, they weren't sure how the restoration would occur, that either new apostles would be sent or there would be a, a, a Pentecostal-like endowment of authority rather than apostles being sent with authority. And there were, in England, the brethren. And when the Mormon missionaries went there, they converted them in mass because they were anticipating some sort of restoration to occur. And the Mormon missionaries seemed to fulfill that uh, anticipation. And the Irvinites were another similar group. Um, in America, there were, uh, they could be called Baptists, like uh, Roger Williams in Rhode Island. And he was anticipating a restoration of uh, authority, either apostles or an endowment of, a charismatic endowment of authority. The position of the seekers, I call them all seekers. They're not necessarily seekers with an S. There was an actual seeker sect in England um, that were anticipating this kind of a restoration. These seekers uh, believed that since there was an apostasy from the ancient Christian church, that Catholicism was an apostate organization and they had lost authority and they wanted or, or were waiting for a more charismatic, spirit-filled uh, authority of that they believed that no baptism could be performed or communion served without special authority being restored, that it was all dead works. So they were waiting. They wouldn't perform baptism or uh, the Lord's Supper. And it turns out that Lucy Smith's brother, Jason, was a seeker, a seeker minister who also had a commune in New Brunswick a commune of about 30 families. And they were seekers waiting for this kind of restoration. And Jason had a, a strong impact on Joseph Smith Sr. And when you read about Lucy's accounts of Joseph Smith Sr.'s dreams, he was anticipating a more spirit-filled restoration, but he had seen the whole religious world as being spiritually dead and desolate. And so he and Lucy, at one period in their marriage, didn't baptize their children. They didn't baptize Alvin especially, because when Alvin died unbaptized, the minister at the, at the burial implied very strongly that Alvin had gone to hell because he was unbaptized. And that sent the family, the Smith family, into commotion, really, into a, a very a distress. It was a very distressful time after Alvin's death. 
And so I argue that Joseph Smith restored this church um, that his father anticipated would come and it fulfilled his dreams in order to get his father to join a church that, or the whole family to join a church that they could all agree on and one that would not consign Alvin to hell. So that's sort of the, my interest in the seekers was that, and that uh, Sidney Rigdon's group was sort of along, moving along those lines out of cannibalism for their own reasons, their own conclusions were similar to that kind of philosophy. And a lot of the early Campbellites when, uh, in converts in Ohio, when they got baptized, they were looking for a sign that they had been baptized by authority. And that was when they come up, came up out of the water, just like the Book of Mormon says, you'll sing, sing this, the praises of Jesus and speak in a new tongue. And it, that was evidence that, they, that the baptism had been performed by the Spirit. And this was before the angel ordination stories ever occurred in the mid-1830s. Mormons looked for charismatic authority during these early years. They knew nothing about angel ordinations. There were no claims of angel ordinations until the 1830s. Just a genuinely very interesting period of time. And I just wanted to double check here. So it's Charisma Under Pressure is the tentative title of this book? Yes. And when do you anticipate that this book will be released? They tell me, because their schedule is already full, it won't be until uh, 2023. Okay, so we have a little ways to go. <laughs> so get a little preview there, folks, of that period of time. You know, one of the other things, and we're just going to touch on this briefly, because you've done a lot of Book of Abraham stuff already. Um, I encourage everybody to watch your recent episode on Mormon Stories, where you discuss it very extensively. Um, but during this period of time, we also have the story of the coming forth of the Book of Abraham via uh, Chandler's uh, uh, mummies and, uh, the, uh, and, and the parchments that were found and deciphered. So this is the period of time where uh, not only is the authority structure being put in place and uh, he's working the church, but he's also now um, giving us new scripture too. Right and 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 telling the world that hey we've got some new scripture here that made it in, its way into our hands maybe talk a little bit about that. Well, the Book of Mormon came first, right? Right. And so yeah, Joseph Smith um, began dictating a translation from the gold plates. Very familiar story. Mm -hmm. But did he really get real plates and really translate real plates? Did he believe that he had plates? Or, as I have uh, argued uh, for many years now, that Joseph Smith was um, felt he he wanted to produce what would be called best be, be described as pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha is writings, pseudo writings, right? Not writings by the author but somebody pretending to be the author, say like um, 
in ancient times, pseudepigrapha was known as maybe the Assumption of Moses or the books of Enoch. Um, these kinds of books were not really written by Moses and not written by Enoch. They were, they dated to the Christian era actually and or near it or around it. Um, and these were, I, I mostly take my uh, cue here from Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman has written books on New Testament pseudepigrapha. Uh, and he explains it as persons in the early Christian church who wanted to solve religious controversies or introduce doctrines that were not clearly expressed in the New Testament writings or even the Old Testament writings, and they wanted to smuggle them into the Christian church. And they did so by pretending to be ancient prophets or patriarchs that happened to incidentally mention the doctrines they wanted introduced. And that gave those doctrines authority and these pseudo-authors, though, remained anonymous. Just in my view, Josephus is a pseudepigraphist, and he believes he's inspired, though. The ancient pseudepigraphists necessarily didn't believe they were inspired. Um, and they would remain anonymous. They wouldn't be known. Joseph Smith is known. And so my take on it is that Joseph Smith felt inspired, wanted in a general way, as he was dictating the Book of Mormon, not very, not a real specific way. A Doctrine and Covenants section 9 uh, mentions when Albert Cowdery wanted to translate in the first month that they had met, uh, that, that is April 1829, Albert Cowdery wanted to try his hand at translation too, because he was a rod worker. He worked a divining rod and wanted to try to translate. And Joe Smith finally allowed him to try, but Albert Cowdery failed. We don't know the details, but Albert Cowdery failed. And then Joe Smith gets a revelations telling Albert Cowdery that he did not understand the process, that he thought God would just give it to him without working it out in his mind. And the instruction was that he should have worked it out in his mind and then prayed and asked God if it was right. And if it was right, God would cause a burning in his bosom to verify or confirm that he had worked it out in his mind correctly. But if he had not worked it out correctly, he would have a stupor of thought and forget the thing that was wrong. And then it says, therefore, you cannot write that which is sacred, save it be given you from God. So, this was the process. This was Joseph Smith kind of revealing his, his process, even though he pretended to put a stone, a seer stone into a hat and then put his face in the hat and, in the, and claimed in the light, uh, he, in a spiritual light would shine from the stone and on the stone he would read the translation. My interpretation is, that he did it in this way to increase faith among his followers, especially his father. 
His father was a money digger. His father used a rod. His father used a seer stone. And he believed his son actually could work this seer stone. And so that was authority. That The first authority Joseph Smith had was from this seer stone. Well, you know, and, and that reminds me, uh, in the, as, as I recall, in the court case, Joseph Smith Sr. even says that, you know, he has this gift, and I'd, I'd rather he use this gift for God's work than for secular means, uh, for mo monetary gain. It almost sounds like that's, he's taken, he's working off of that as well. Yeah, this is, uh, this is in one account of the 1826 trial. This is before Joseph Smith thought of, uh, you know, or had uh, at least translated, he hadn't translated anything. He the claim was that he had uh, discovered the plates in the hill in 1823, but he carried on as a treasure digger or a treasure seer. And he got hired by Josiah Stoll from South Bainbridge, about 150 miles from Palmyra. He came all the way to Palmyra and hired Joseph Smith for his ability to see treasures in his stone. Joseph Smith had surpassed other seers that were around his community. This this was not a rare thing, Joseph Smith using a seer stone. He wasn't the only one using a seer stone. There was, a, a, you know, three, four, five people in his own community of Manchester and Palmyra that used seer stones, including Sally Chase, uh, William Stafford, um, his own father, um, and a, Walters, the magician, came and uh, used a seer stone to find a treasure in Joseph Smith's backyard, practically. And so Joseph Smith, he surpassed them uh, in his ability to instill confidence in his father and other people. And his the word of his ability got spread about so far away that even Josiah Stowe came and hired him and took him back, not to South Bainbridge, but to Harmony, Pennsylvania, that it was south of South Bainbridge on the Susquehanna River. And there was a location on the river there in the great bend of the river where they believed that there was a, a treasure, a Spanish mine that the, that the Spaniards had uh, buried anyway, uh, treasure, silver, coins. And on three successive summers, Josiah Stoll had gone there to, uh, or money digging companies, let's say, had gone there searching after this treasure and they hired a, a, a woman by the name of Odal to look for uh, the treasure first. And they kept failing. And then now Josiah Stoll decided to try one more time at least and hired Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith and his father went down to Harmony, Pennsylvania, and they were there for about a month before Joseph Smith says that he talked the old gentleman out of uh, pursuing it any longer, and uh, they disbanded, but Joseph Smith stuck around. He didn't just go home. His father went home, but uh, he's, he uh, stuck around and lived with jo uh, Josiah Stoll during the winter and went to school with his sons, and uh, Josiah Stoll hired him to search for other treasures. And finally, 
some of the family members got uh, upset uh, and thought Joe Smith was deceiving their, what was a, a nephew, uncle, a Bridgman, a guy named Bridgman. Um, I think it was Peter Bridgman, something like that. It uh, took Joseph Smith to court and they tried him on a disorderly conduct. Back at that time, it was illegal to pretend and the law considered all attempts pretending. They didn't distinguish between true seers and fake seers. It was against the law to pretend to see in the earth, to see in the ground, and to do all sorts of other kinds of, uh, you know, what they call fraudulent schemes. And that was put under the disorderly conduct uh, clause in New York law. Of course, it's not there anymore. But so they tried Joseph Smith in March of 1826. And during uh, the, it, the trial, it's very, very um, uncertain exactly what was going on because the records, we don't have like a, a perfect documents in this case uh, to know exactly the outcome, what the it's kind of disputed whether he was found guilty or not found guilty or an off the cut uh, uh, record um, agreement was made that Joseph Smith would quit money digging and um, and so he was let go. And some of the counts uh, state that. But uh, William D. Purple, who lived in nearby Green, uh, Bay, near South Bay Bridge in Green, New York, in Shenango County, was at the trial and kept notes. And in 1877, published his account. And his account is the only one to mention that Joseph Smith Sr. spoke to the court. This was a preliminary hearing, so nobody was under oath really. And Joseph Smith Sr. said that he would hope that, that his son would find a better use for his gift than the searching after filthy lucre. And so, a lot of people quote that as maybe Joseph Smith took that as his cue that uh, his days as a money seeker were limited and he moved on from that uh, to use his gift in a more uh, religious fashion. One of the most fascinating stories that I watched on one of your videos, I believe, was how you talk about so we have the seer stone, but we also have the issue of the interpreters, the spectacles. And as uh, from my understanding, um, there was somebody actually kind of introduced the idea of interpreters into the narrative. Um, maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, this was uh, in Palmyra, there were other seers and Samuel Lawrence was another one of these seers. Uh, and he was, a little older and he was a friend of Joseph Smith's and Joseph Smith had uh, seen the plates in 1823 he said and then in 1824 he was supposed to return to the hill to get the plates but he was supposed to bring his brother Alvin but Alvin died in the interim and so he couldn't get the plates in 1824 and he stopped he didn't there was no going every year 
that story came later. It was he was supposed to get them in 1824 and he failed because he didn't he wasn't able to bring Alvin to the hill with him. That's what he told his family in 1824 when he returned from the hill without the plates. So then the revival of Palmyra revival occurred and he was participating in that with his family and he had returned a stone actually to Willard Richards who is the real owner of the stone. It was found on his property while digging a well and Joseph Smith and Alvin were helping dig the well and Joseph Smith borrowed it he said because he could see things in it and then he returned it and during this period he went through kind of a religious phase and then he asked for he suddenly asked for the stone back again and wouldn't return it after that which made Willard Richards angry um, but the stone gave Joseph Smith this credibility because there was a family, a well-known family of, with Sally Chase in it, who was a seeress and used a stone, a green, bluish green colored stone herself. And they pronounced it as a legitimate stone. So Joseph Smith wanted that stone that had this credibility with it and he borrowed it and then he resumed his treasure seeking activities um and he went to, to the hill again and po pointed out the location of the plates to samuel lawrence and asked samuel lawrence to verify their existence in the hill so that joe smith would get a second witness to the reality of the plates and this was uh, apparently, in 1824 or 5, or, or 1825 or 6. Um, so, uh, according to Willard Chase, Samuel Lawrence looked in his stone and saw the plates. But he said to Joseph, well, uh, I see the plates. But I also see a giant pair of spectacles. Can you see them? And Joseph looked and said, no. And then Samuel says, well, you better look again. And he looks, and Joseph Smith looks and then sees the spectacles. Well, my interpretation of this episode is that Samuel Lawrence is only adding an element that he can see more than Joseph Smith, uh, that he can see spectacles. These weren't magical spectacles that they turned out to be when Joseph Smith uh, uh, retrieved the plates and the, quote, Urim and Thummim that he called them later. Um, they were just spectacles and they were large because the mound builders were believed to be a large race. And that's all. They were just spectacles. Well, so Joe Smith gets his second witness, but uh, Samuel Lawrence, because this is all a confidence scheme anyway, uh, Samuel Lawrence can go away from this and say, well, I saw something Joe Smith didn't see. My stone's more powerful than his. You know, my gift is greater than his gift. 
And so they, his reputation was enhanced and Joseph Smith regained a reputation for seeing things in the earth with a second witness to the plates. At this point though, it's not clear what these plates were going to be or they, they were just an artifact in the hill and uh, just the same as when he saw in Miner's Hill uh, earlier around 1823, um, a golden throne that the king sat on hidden in this hill that, that Joseph Sr. dug for for quite a while. So these were artifacts that they could see but never obtain. And Joe Smith could see the plates in the hill and his stone, and he could probably read them from his with his stone to his family on these evening conversations that Lucy Smith used to talk about. Where did he get this information? Not just from talking to the, the messenger, you know, once a year, you know. Uh, so it's possible. There's no details about how he told these stories and and described described them in detail as if he lived lived amongst them lucy said this to me would suggest that he so it was seeing things in his stone about these plates before that in fact the stone the stone was used according to martin harris to find the plates the location of the plates when Joe Smith went there after he had seen this uh, messenger. So the most interesting thing to me and then, oh, I'm sorry, you're going to say something? Yeah, so so the, the sequel to this is that <laughs> when Joe Smith does get the plates and he does take the uh, spectacles and he shows off the, the spectacles to his mother, uh, according to her history, under a cloth sheet. She's allowed to feel them. And they're like a like some kind of metal and it's bent in a figure eight. And she could feel the stones in the in the two bows of the, you know, two bows of the figure eight. And uh, after that he discards them as quickly as possible. He um, may have had them behind the curtain when he was copying the uh, uh, characters from the plates in harmony later on. But after that, he uses the stone in the hat to translate with. So even though- He doesn't, he doesn't use the spectacles. So even for the last 116 pages, you're saying that he was using the stone in the hat for that as well? Yes, because Martin Harris was the scribe Mm -hmm. for for most of the lost 116 page manuscript and emma uh, also they both describe the stone in the hat they don't they don't describe using the the uh spectacles martin harris describes the spectacles uh but he he whenever he describes um translating the stone is in the hat and he even tells that one story of switching the stone. And, mm -hmm. and then um, he, he said he found a stone down by the Susquehanna River while they were throwing stones, uh, resting from their long translation periods. And he, he, decided, he found a stone he thought looked like the other stone, 
but of course, no two stones look the same, really. But uh, he put he switched them, and Joseph looked into the hat, and then in the darkness said, "What? What's wrong, Martin? All is as dark as Egypt. <laughs> you can't. Nothing's happening. You should note that this story implies that the stone is." has magical properties. It isn't just some kind of focal point and it all happens psychologically. Um, the story implies the stone is integral to the whole process that it has some kind of special properties like Joseph Smith claimed. So going back briefly to the book of Abraham, one of the questions um, when, when I was watching your presentation at Mormon Stories, you had mentioned, I believe, and I'm just trying to from memory here, that you had quoted Lucy as saying for the process of translating the book of Abraham that he was employing a hat at that yeah. time as well. Now, the yeah. question I have for you, was he using the seer stone? With, for, for, was he just using a hat or was he also using the seer stone for the book of Abraham? Well, there's no uh, firsthand account by Joe Smith or those uh, the people that were scribes, you know, um, but this uh, story, this statement by Lucy in 1845, 46, uh, she said in a public meeting that Joseph Smith could, would put the place, the hat, the stone and the hat and the hat to his face, and he could read the parts that were missing on the papyri, as well as the parts that were there. Because there's that question, if he's translating and there's parts missing, how can he trans translate it if there's parts missing? Uh, there's also other statements, uh, one by uh, Wolfe Woodruff. He calls it a Urim and Thummim, but Urim and Thummim by this time were was used interchangeably with the spectacles and the seer stone. Uh, and Wilford Woodruff said he used the seer stone. There's a blessing that Cowdery gives uh, Joseph Smith in 1834 that um, mentions that this, he would be the seer with the seer, the Yermanthamum again, translating. So there are cl these clues that perhaps he did use the seer stone again. And the other clue that I find interesting is when they did that expedition to Massachusetts to find the buried treasure under that house, is the implication there that he may have been using this, employing the seer stone to look for that as well? No, he was told. Uh, a particular location, yeah. Yeah, he was told that there was a treasure map and that there was a certain house that a certain basement and they went there with that in mind okay it wasn't like uh a supernatural okay so this was it more have, of it may have been involved after they got there mm -hmm. i don't know but they got how they got there was uh that they were told that that there was a treasure in a basement of some man's house that nobody had ever uncovered and which is 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 a kind of a bizarre story in itself that they would go that far and stay that long in, in Salem, Massachusetts, looking for uh, this, this stone. 
I mean, for the treasure. Yeah, it just seems to call back to an earlier, like a throwback to an earlier era, maybe less yeah. supernatural, but still kind of a callback to his money day, digging days. One of the things that I find interesting is um, when I got um, Bush, Bushman's book, uh, Rough Stone Rolling, one of the things that really stuck out to me was um, when I read about him talking about the book of Abraham, he described it as apocryphal. It could be best described as being apocryphal. Well, that was a surprising statement to me because the, the Deseret Books is distributing this book with that statement in there. So, oh. I, you know, and that's what I found. So that's what really struck me was, wait a second, this is this is church approved and it's being distributed by them and it's saying that the book of Abraham is apocryphal. So I guess... I, I just wanted you to address that. And also maybe we can even talk a little bit about Bushman's work as well. Well, I'm, I'm not sure what he meant by that. Uh, apocryphal, whether he meant it's a pseudepigrapha, like how I, think, I, how I view it. I think if yeah. you read, read the context, I think that's kind of the direction he's leaning towards is, okay. is yours. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There, there are an increasing amount of um, LDS scholars that are seeing it as um, apocryphal or pseudepigraphic um, that the papyri acted as a catalyst for Joseph Smith to receive an independent revelation on Abraham and some doctrines that were important to the church at the time. They are not sure whether it was uh, the revelation was a translation of an actual book of Abraham, you know, that wasn't present, or whether it was uh, just a revelation, uh, you know, pseudepigraphic, like I argue. Um, a, it was a modern book, but yet inspired uh, about an ancient in an allegorical way to use Abraham as a, a as a way of a model of trying to express uh, new yet inspired uh, doctrines, like the high priesthood, right off the Joseph's uh, injustice dictation of the Book of Abraham, the first part right away deals with Abraham. Be receiving the priesthood through the lineage of his fathers, having the right of the priesthood. Well, the Old Testament has no lineage, priesthood lineage in it. Uh, a high priest or Melchizedek priest. Or, well, Melchizedek wasn't around in the days of Adam, of course. But this priesthood comes up from Adam up to Melchizedek and to Abraham, I guess. Even though that book of Abraham doesn't mention Melchizedek. Uh, <clears throat> But the concern is for Joseph Smith to, to get uh, scriptural proof for his uh, high priesthood, introduction of the high priesthood in 1831, as well as the uh, patriarchal priesthood that he was developing and introducing to the church in 1834. And there were some of his own followers questioning whether... They should have introduced the high priesthood. They saw, you know, there were um, some of some of the men um, had um, 
what they thought were evil manifestations at the time that caused all sorts of contortions in their bodies when they got ordained. And even Hiram Smith tried to stop the process in 1831 of introducing the high priesthood, saying, surely this, this is not a good sign, uh, that it's, it's an evil sign. And Joseph, give me some sort of evidence. And Joseph uh, talked him into uh, thinking that it was being, that Satan was trying to stop the introduction of the high priesthood. So, um, that was a concern right off. Different people questioned whether Jesus was our only high priest, like the the uh, book of Hebrews says. But Amos chapter 13 implies that there were uh, a lineage of high priests, uh, Melchizedek being the chief of these high priests. And um, so Joseph Smith probably use that to convince a lot of the brethren but the high the high priesthood was developing in 1834 like i said into the patriarchal priesthood and the patriarchal priesthood was uh supposed to be according to josephus the this patriarchal priesthood lineage also included authority to be to the kingship to theocracy and this fit with his uh, attempt to establish Zion in Missouri. And then some of the brethren, including Oliver Cowdery and others, didn't know whether they should try to establish an actual kingship in America. Um, it wasn't, <laughs> uh, a lot of them were very Republican minded Mm -hmm. so is the book of mormon <laughs> yeah but i mean uh they they wanted their freedom they didn't want to be dictated to by an ecclesiastic authority of some kind in their worldly affairs mm -hmm. they thought just joseph was going too far in trying to have an actual a treasonable even <laughs> an actual government within the united states territory although I, I would as a footnote when they first were going to establish the new jerusalem it was going to be in the indian territory and not in the united states territory so uh, there was a change of plans and that kind of um, made it a little more complicated but at any rate Back to the Book of Abraham. The Book of Abraham was concerned with establishing this patriarchal priesthood, and it was Pharaoh of Egypt who claim, claimed to have authority through the patriarchal lineage through Ham uh, to be a Pharaoh and establish a patriarchal government, and that he was an illegitimate. The Book of Abraham declares he was an illegitimate uh, heir. To, to this or claim it to this patriarchal lineage and that only the, uh, Abraham was of the correct lineage through his father. So that's one concern. Another concern was uh, uh, pre-existence, um, that there was a pre-existence 
it implied that Abraham, well, it says Abraham was one of these gods that were participated in the uh, creation. And by implication, Joseph Smith was also, you know, so it, this is uh, one of the roads to the, you know, deification of Joseph Smith in a way. Mm. But uh, um, so there was that, uh, that Joseph Smith worked in um, his uh, version of creation from what he learned as a student of Hebrew and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So there's so much convergence going on in this period of time. Book of Abraham, I recommend this book um, very heartily. Um, and just real quick, just to put a bow on on uh, Richard Bushman. So, you know, when your book came out, Joseph Smith, uh, do you have your copy of your biography? Why don't you show that to the audience? So, yeah, so there's, hold on, I'm going to switch over to gallery. The making of a prophet. Yep, the making of a prophet. Oh, here we'll have it side by side for the first well, time, right? <laughs> Joseph Smith, the making of a prophet. Yes. So, um, tell me, what what do you think are some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses of this book? You actually, one of the very first YouTube videos you ever gave was uh, maybe comparing and contrasting, talking a little bit about his work. Your books both came out at the same time, um, and both were important, groundbreaking works in their own right. Um, maybe just talk a little bit about that. Well, mine came out a little bit before his, mm -hmm. which I was glad to do because then I didn't have to really uh, deal with a lot of stuff he wrote. But uh, mm -hmm. it was very surprising to me. He, he was very candid about a lot of issues, which has since got him into trouble with uh, more conservative-minded uh, believers. Yet... He uh, pulls back and he admits that he writes as a believer and that he doesn't allow his mind to go into certain uh, areas that would uh, question uh, Justice Smith. Although I, I don't question Joe Smith as I cannot as a scholar say Joe Smith was not a prophet or that he was not inspired or that the Book of Mormon is not inspired. I can say it's not ancient. I can say the Book of Abraham is not ancient, but I cannot say that uh, the book is in, not, or those books are not inspired. I can say that you reflect Joseph Smith's environment and the things around him and his concerns. That's what historians do. But whether that's inspired or not is a, a, not a scholarly uh, question. Now, as close as I could get is to say, did Joseph Smith believe? they were inspired. I can, historians can't answer that. And, and, I, and I answer that in the affirmative that I believe he believed that he was inspired. He was totally conscious that they, they were not ancient. He could still believe they were ancient, but he didn't believe they came from gold plates or papyri or whatever. He uh, could still believe that they were inspired though, and that he was working it out in his mind that God was giving him confirmation that what he's working out was true. Or, you know, that when he says the most correct book on earth, he's really talking about the most doctrin doctrinally accurate, you know. And, um, but Bushman, so Bushman has, is limited in that fashion, but 
boy, I was surprised to see that the family dynamics were uh, seen in his book the similar as I had uh, reconstructed them. And that's mostly because he, that he, he has had training in psychology. He, he has paid attention to those things. And I learned uh, the family systems uh, theory, <laughs> family systems approach to, to try to see the, uh, the family rather than seeing one person in it and their psychological problems, let's say, uh, to see the family as a system that the family seeks a homeostasis, a balance, and different parts are being played to keep it in balance. And uh, I did, I learned that firsthand through in my own therapy, but I had also studied it uh, academically in the university uh, and on my own uh, to write about the Smith family dynamics and, the, and how it fits into um, the historical sources or is supported by the historical sources as I see them. It also helped me uh, see things that I wouldn't have seen in the sources otherwise. So I, um, my uh, general impression of rough stone rolling is positive. Uh, some people see it as apologetic still. He's still being an apologist somewhat and he pulls back. But um, I don't mind that so much. I'm not, <laughs> um, I'm just happy for what he did write. He wrote a whole biography. My biography is only a partial biography, which I'm working on uh, the other phases of Joseph Smith's life uh, as, as I go on. I don't know what else you want to know about. So, well, putting a bow on that, that's good. I appreciate to hear what you have to say. And then since we're talking about other um, biographies, so talking about another interesting book to contrast with is No Man Knows My History, uh, Fawn Brody. Um, a few things that I found fascinating. One, she brought her um, a lot of Freudian stuff in here. <laughs> uh, so she was psychoanalyzing the prophet. Sort of. Yeah, sort of brought that it's in. Over, she, the Freudian stuff's overplayed. Well, it, it it was more so in the Nixon biography where she went full fledged Freudian. Yeah. That, yeah. But but the, this was kind of the beginning of her in reading uh, that or writing in that vernacular. Uh, but uh, also, one thing I also want to contrast with is the idea of you come up with the idea of a pious fraud. Now we talked about this the other day. How Fawn Fawn did doesn't. When I read her book, I was like, you know, I don't think she understands what it's like to be a believer. Um, she just assumed that he was a scoundrel or just a, a fraud from the beginning. And you actually kind of go a different direction where you kind of take and you'd use the term pious fraud. So maybe just compare and contrast your approach and, and where she was coming from. Right. So hold on one moment. Yep. So, hey, this is great. I'm getting all this information, folks, from uh, Dan Vogel, and uh, this is very exciting. I get to ask all these great questions to him uh, that I've had for years, and here he's back. I yep. just wanted to get my copy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's great. This is a second edition, though. Mm -hmm. I, a second enlarged, uh, revised in, in a large edition. Uh, I got I got when I was well, just off my mission, practically. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Um, and... I, I marked it up and re I, I read it. Um, I liked it. Well, I, I thought at the time I was a believer in it and I uh, tried to work through a lot of what she wrote. Um, 
it's really well written, like from a uh, the view of a novelist in a way, because she is a um, an English major. She writes really well. She focuses on that part of what she's writing now. Um, a lot of what she's written is a little outdated somewhat, not necessarily inaccurate, but a little outdated and could be more nuanced. Um, Dale Morgan, who was a, a Mormon, a really good Mormon historian who worked in the Library of Congress, uh, helped her do research and, and writing and finding her point of view. And I think because this was the first biography really written by a professional. And she probably overemphasized the negative aspects of fraud and didn't quite delve into um, just as possible sincere religious feelings. So she writes him as essentially irreligious. Uh, most, a lot of people have a hard time uh, fathoming how can a religious person lie in God's name? You know, <laughs> they can't get that worked out in their minds, so they just assume, oh, it's got to be a fraud. It, it can't be. Uh, there can't be any sincere. Uh, motivation involved because how can somebody hold in the, their own being sincere belief and yet at the same time be committing the worst possible sin of pretending to speak for God, you know, a blasphemy and things like that. And so there, there is, it's, I, my view is kind of opposite that Joseph Smith was too religious in a way. He was a zealot. He was so religious. A zealot will become so zealot for their cause that they will actually come around and become what they're fighting. <laughs> so, so it's it's like um, th thinking about the terror terrorists who commit atrocities in the name of God. How can they do that? Well, that is very hard for us to work out in our minds, but it's possible. People do it all the time. It happens. And they ra rationalize and justify whatever behavior they need to do to accomplish their goal. And my, my view is that Joseph Smith actually believed he was authorized by God. And there is little hints of this. It's sort of like Nephi, the story of Nephi. He, he meets up, he, he's tasked to get the, the brass plates. <laughs> he's tasked to get the brass plates from Laban and he can't get them from Laban. And so uh, he gets kicked out by Laban and they all, he and his brothers run. And then Nephi gets the idea he's going to sneak in. He's going to uh, try to get the plates, but he runs into Laban, the drunken Laban, and um, the spirit whispers to him to cut his head off, to kill Laban, and Nephi's uh, repulsed by that idea, 
and the spirit whispers to him that that uh, it's going to uh, produce the greater good. It's better that one man perish in unbelief than uh, or perish than a whole nation perish in unbelief. So it's the greater good. You know, Nephi hesitates and says, I've never broken the commandments. I've always kept the commandments. Uh, you know, he can't do this act. And that's when the spirit tries uh, to convince him that it's going to produce the greater good. And so Nephi crosses that moral line into this other territory and, and slays Laban and puts on his armor and goes in and gets the brass plates and accomplishes his mission so that they're able to take the plates back to uh, to the new world and they have the scriptures which uh, is a, a greater good kind of an end justifies the means type kind of sort of, sort of like that that's my view there's other stories i could tell in just Smith's own writings that um you know show that just smith at least had this kind of thinking he had the ability he had the ability to rationalize his behavior. And so I believe Joe Smith is sincere and that it's too much faith maybe <laughs> that pushed him into this area of uh, doing, doing the greater good. He knew he could accomplish this mission. He would convert more souls than he would otherwise. And that was a greater good, including his own father. He can convert his own father who was unconverted and um, where the family was divided and he brought the family together by being able to convert his father through the authority of his stone, through the ability to use deception for a good cause. And then he projected this out into the, the same principle out into the world. So just since we're here, I just have to throw this guy out here, Robert Remini's uh, Joseph Smith biography. This kind of ties in with the time period that you're currently working on, uh, the Jacksonian era. Robert Remini is one of the premier uh, Jacksonian historians. I love him and his work. Um, what do you think about this little volume he put out? Well, it's it's a, a simple, quick introduction. Uh, Robert, we use Robert Remini's, uh, and I still do, his uh, books in my uh university course on Jacksonian history. We used uh, that and another book he wrote on the 1828 election or campaign. And I, I had the pleasure of introducing Robert Remini uh, at Sunstone for one session. Wow. And, um, after he published that book, he came to Sunstone to promote it. And I was the guy that introduced him to the, the audience. And uh, I still, I use his stuff. He is the expert on that period. He wasn't intending on answering all the controversies. He just wanted to produce a, a general introduction to Joseph Smith to, to a larger audience that didn't have a lot of time to read. Yeah, I thought it was a fine book. And I, I think it's a credit to, so to, you know, to have one of the premier Jacksonian historians recognize the importance of Joseph Smith, and that he was an important historical figure in, in that scene at that time as well. Well, what makes him important is that he had so many followers. Yes. And Absolutely. that his he was able to establish an organization that was self-perpetuating. 
and rewarding and uh, his followers kept his memory alive. If, if Joseph had gone into uh, obscurity like some of these other minor prophets, uh, like the leather stocking prophet in northern Ohio <laughs> that nobody knows about, uh, then yeah, we wouldn't be talking about him, and, and there wouldn't be as much written on him. And right. so he did. He Remini during his presentation did emphasize that uh, that aspect of Joseph Smith that his genius of um, creating an institution that was um, still alive is worth, makes the uh, adjustment worth studying. Mm. Absolutely. Yep. So um, how are you doing here? Because I, I want to talk a little bit about a few more things. Oh. Are we doing it? All right, good. I'm having fun. Are you? Yeah, sure. Go <laughs> so one of the things I wanted to mention to you is that, you know, the other day when we were doing an off the record conversation, we, you, much of my audience is very interested in um, the different proposed geographical locations of where the Book of Mormon took place. Now, I have a lot of people who are uh, viewers of mine that are, um, you know, believe in the heartland um, model of it taking place in the uh, primarily in the upper Midwest. And of course I have people, uh, the, tr the standard or the kind of the more traditional or more modern understanding of the Mesoamerica uh, model. But one of the things that you propose is you kind of have your own, uh, if you will, model. Um, and you would say a hemispheric model for the events. Uh, in other words, the writer of the Book of Mormon is using a hemispheric model to maybe perhaps inform the story of the Book of Mormon, would that be kind of where you'd be coming from? My my position is to uh, defend the first readers the of the first, Book of Mormon, right? Who you their, think their yeah. view, no matter how unscientific it may seem, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you were stuck with um, the context in which the Book of Mormon was written, and I believe Joseph Smith uh, wrote it. And that he, in common with his uh, contemporaries, had a view of that there was only one Indian, <laughs> there wasn't different Indians, that there was um, one origin, one main origin, anyway. He allowed for other groups to come across from Jerusalem, like the Mulekites afterwards or that the Jaredites came over before them um, but the main uh, theory <laughs> at Joseph's time was the mound builder myth and the mound builder myth was hemispheric in geography and because they saw all the ancient works the works down in South America and Peru um, in Central America and Mexico and the mounds in the, in the Mississippi Basin as being the works of one race, a white race. All of them were constructed by one race. And that they began in the South, this was the dominant theory, they began in the South with this high civilization with palaces and towers, and great walls and roads, uh, the ability to work in steel and writing, that they had a, this uh, hieroglyphic type writing, um, which most people know the Mayan writing, 
they knew about all this up in Joseph Smith's region, and that they began down there, and that as time went on, they began to degenerate, and that the Indian destroyed them in the Great Lakes region, the land of many waters in the Book of Mormon, and destroyed them, and that, that the mounds were mass burial grounds of the dead in the Great War. Some of the mounds were temple mounds, and other mounds were fortification mounds, because not all the, all the mounds were a pile, you know, like a hill shape. Some of them uh, actually have shapes of animals, but like the serpent mound in Ohio, or circular with, a, with an opening. And that on top of the circular mound were picket works, which the Book of Alma describes in great de detail during the uh, time of General Moroni. And so it describes them in great detail. It also describes, you know, these palaces in, in very vague terms because they were so remote to uh, Joseph Smith's place. But he describes in great detail the picket works that Moroni constructed to protect his people. Um, so the Mount Builder myth was hemispheric. And I believe the Book of Mormon fits that hemispheric model the easiest, even if it's not historical. But those who want to make it an actual history don't want to talk about that. They want to just focus on small areas, small geographic areas, because um, in time it became noticeable that the that the geography of the Book of Mormon, hemispheric geog geography, was untenable. It couldn't, it couldn't work in the real world. And this happened uh, basically in, in 1887 when the Reverend Lamb of Utah uh, published a book called The Golden Bible. And in there, he questioned the recent um, publication by Orson Pratt of the Book of Mormon in 1879 had footnotes with Lehigh Landing in Chile and uh, the uh, Camorra <laughs> being in New York. Mm -hmm. And the, the dominant theory that took hold over time to get away from that problem, plus rapid, rapid population growth, um, was the uh, limited Teowanapec theory where the Mayans are featured, the Mayans, Olmecs are featured in Central America as being the Jaredites and then the Nephites and Lamanites. Uh, the Isthmus of Teowanapec in Southern Mexico was supposed to be the narrow neck of land. And that, that's like 130 miles across, you know, and, and they imagine that some Nephite on which the Book of Mormon in the Book of Alma names, oops, Alma, <laughs> Alma 20, 22, 32, I believe it is, um, just in around that, that uh, same chapter talks about uh, the line that can be drawn from the East to the West Sea, that it took a day and a half journey for, for a Nephite 
to travel. Well, it's, John Sorensen imagined it was some sort of Nephite runner that could run from one one point to another point in a day and a half. Well, the problem with that theory was that the, the seas are on the north and the south. And Sorensen suggested that uh, cardinal directions are uh, culturally defined. And he imagined that it could be tilted Maybe the Nephites had a, a, a geography orientation of 45 degrees, tilted 45 degrees in order to get, get it the seas on the north and the south. <laughs> yeah, um, well, and you had pointed out in the hemispheric model that there's actually a particular spot on the map in which you can actually, the, the, it seems to fulfill the particulars of a relatively narrow area of land and also a east east sea west sea orientation yeah and this is the way the early mormons like orson pratt before orson pratt uh viewed it was that even you even though you have a neck of land which they imagined to be from tehuanapec all the way to panama that's the neck but the narrow passage where the line could be drawn uh, just above the land bountiful, which was the highest point on the land southward, um, that a line could be a, sh a short line could be drawn a distance of a day and a half for a Nephite to travel, can only be drawn on this point on the map and nowhere else. And um, that would be right where where Panama connects onto South America, that instead of going east to west, like Central America does, it jets downward all of a sudden into South America. And there's the Pacific Ocean on the west, but on the east, there's a bay or gulf, the Gulf of Darien, as it was called, the Gulf of Darien, and right there where it connects can be drawn, uh, drawn a line that touches water on both sides from the east to the west. So, um, and it's only about 20 miles. And if you're on the hills of Panama, Panama you can see both seas at the same time. But uh, it should be kept in mind that for a hundred years, almost, or whatever, how many decades, for decades, Mormons held a hemispheric model, and a lot of, lot of Mormons still do, but see no problem with the hemispheric model, like, how do they travel so fast, you know, uh, across distances, or that the, the war begins at the, at the narrow neck, uh, and the Lamanites chase the Nephites into the land northward and they end up in New York. Yep. Seems, seems like, you know, chase an army chasing another army and they end up uh, at the last battle uh, ground in New York is a little difficult to accomplish in the real world, not in literature, but in the real world. And that nobody sees any problem with this until it's really pointed out to them.
like the Reverend Lamb did in 1887, and then started them on this journey of a, let's find a limited geography. And they've been trying to find a limited geography ever since. <laughs> and the, the Heartland model mostly comes out of the Spalding theorists with Vernal Hawley. Vernal Hawley uh, tried to match the Book of Mormon to uh, Solomon Spalding's uh, history. And Solomon Spalding, he was following the mound builders in North America, and, and his histories follow that myth a lot closer than the Book of Mormon does. More accurate. He uses words like the Tennesseans and Kentuckians and things like that. Well, uh, Vernal Hawley tried to match up the Book of Mormon with Spalding's manuscript being just limited to North America. And he started playing around with some of the names of uh, uh, names of cities and things. And, you know, you get into this very nebulous situation where names, you can start playing with names. Uh, not a very good sound scholarly method, really. But that's where the Heartland model grows out of. And it, it's not what the original Mormons believed for many decades until they were challenged on, on the distances. And then they tried to turn that argument on its head and say, well, it has to be a limited area. And they started hunting for a limited area and very uh, forcefully trying to make it shoehorn it <laughs> into working. And the problem with uh, Sorensen and tilting the map is that uh, it doesn't matter where they landed, the, the uh, people usually go by the uh, rising of the sun or setting of the sun and that and it sets in the east and if they came from israel it, it would have set in the east and they knew where it set in the east and they would have um oriented their uh cardinal points accordingly but it would not have been in the direction that Sorensen put put it yeah, so I just wanted to maybe have you just share a little bit with my audience. Now, I talked with um, Jonathan Neville the other day about some of the stuff he had told me, and he disputes some of what you have to say. Um, but I don't really want to make this about um, a conversation like that. But I, I, I do find uh, your hypothesis very interesting. I think yeah. it's just, you know, Jonathan talks about multiple working hypotheses. Um, yeah. And that's kind of your contribution. For those of you who haven't, uh, Patrick Murphy, I'm sorry, Thomas Murphy, came on and discussed uh, his view of the Heartland model. And of course, I had Rod Meldrum come on. So uh, all views are being taken into account and heard on this channel. So check those out if you haven't already. Um, so let's see here. Um, I wanted to add one. Oh, please one, do one, one point to this about the yes. early Mormons. I, I, you know, live with the early Mormonism. That's my field. And they believed Lehi landed in Chile, and mm -hmm. that uh, Oliver Cowdery, in 1830, when he went to Northern Ohio and started preaching, the newspaper reported his preaching included the claim that Lehi had landed in Chile. Mm. And there is also a, a, a tradition, a very strong tradition, we actually have the words that Lehi landed on the 32nd parallel uh, in Chile. And this was supposed to be a statement by Joseph Smith. And 
this this statement was written down by uh frederick g williams some people try to say oh that was a revelation to frederick g williams but and not so and uh the tradition handed down with that statement is that it came by revelation to joseph smith which i wrote a long paper did a sunstone presentation on and i hope in the future to put it in a video uh yes and and uh, just so you know folks too um you will be doing a youtube channel soon and so when you uh, or you're going to be putting up new videos and so when you yeah. um are going to release your newest video you're going to come back on we're going to kind of preview your new series on youtube one thing i wanted to you had mentioned to the audience uh, that how you have written in no man knows my history you had also show me uh the uh the reverend's golden uh the golden bible uh book where that you, you bought that first edition and wrote in it and i i took you said yeah you were young and you didn't know what you're doing and here you have a first edition here's my the golden bible by reverend lamb it's all beat up and uh, it was a paperback to begin with, so it's all the signatures are separated. Uh, but yeah, yeah, this is his book. Yeah, that's really cool. I, mar I marked it up, but I, you know, I don't. <laughs> well, you, you of course, you had mentioned how. I'm not a book collector. Yes, but you had mentioned, oh, that's a, you know, oh my goodness, the first 19th century book, and you're marking it up. But I thought, you know, that makes that particular edition very unique, and it's a vogel edition in your handwriting. So I actually think that makes that even the rarest edition of that book, if you will, and probably worth something. <laughs> so, um, well, uh, you know, I really want to tell you, I really enjoyed our conversation that we we've had. Um, and, and, and you've taken, you've been so generous with your time and we've had some technical difficulties and we both kind of got powered through them and that was great. Um, you know, I, I want to get back to this pastor Cuthbert that you met in England. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to know a little bit more about him. You had said that he, uh, he was putting out stuff in England, um, and, and materials just kind of give me a little insight on the, what made this guy tick and the kind of stuff he was doing out there. Well, um, so Re Reverend Cuthbert was an Elam Pentecostal. Oh, Pentecostal Elam? Okay, great. Christopher's going to love to hear that I one. I don't know what Elam means. I just, <laughs> I just, that's what he told me. Mm -hmm. Elam, and he, and he had a church. And at the time, we drove by the church and it had like scaffolding. I have a picture of it even. Scaffolding on the one side of it, especially. And it had been hit by lightning. Wow. So when we knocked on his door and he had a reputation, his reputation went so far as to get the notice of my friend Brent Medcalf, who was in the London, England uh, mission. And he had heard of Reverend Cuthbert and had seen or, or listened, I think, also to some tapes of Reverend Cuthbert. And these tapes, I listened to the tapes. I got a hold of one and listened to the tapes. I got some photocopies of some of his literature. And it, and it was actually photocopies of the Tanner's literature with his logo put on it. And, yeah. uh, and it was, you know, a page of the revelations with uh, all the changes marked on it. So... Um, I wanted to meet him because I, you know, wanted some um, 
uh, interesting conversation, put it that mm-hmm. way. <laughs> what an interesting conversation. Instead of doors being slammed in my face. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> so we drove there and I went, we knocked on the door and we talked a while. And I said to him, you know, I, we saw your church uh, it was hit by lightning. And, and I kind of said, well, did you claim that it was an act of God on the insurance? <laughs> that was my joke. So, but he, he took to me, he liked me, and he invited us in. And he took us into his back garden. And he had like a shed uh, there. And that was his makeshift office. And in it, he had uh, all these books, but he had the tenors literature and he was showing it to me you know, and pointing this out and that out. And we were discussing things and debating some topics. And uh, he, during that conversation is when he told me that he had just gotten back from America. He was proud of being in America, but he had gone to Salt Lake and he had met the Tanners and he uh, wondered why I didn't know of them. He couldn't believe that I didn't know uh, of the Tanners. I go, no, I, I've never heard of them, or I, I know absolutely nothing. Even though I had been exposed to anti-Mormonism mm-hmm. in California, and especially when I went out tracking with the missionaries, you would meet anti-Mormons, and we would debate with them about certain topics. And of course, as I mentioned, I met them on, in high school, you know, uh, giving me these anti-Mormon arguments and, but I had never heard of the Tanners and they were a definitely a step above <laughs> all this other uh, anti-Mormon, you know, easy, easy stuff that I've heard yeah. more because they got actually into the history yeah. of Mormonism and the actual documents and what, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young were saying and things like that, not ju- not just proof texting from the Bible. Mm, that's right. Yep. Anybody anybody can you know slip out of those things. But uh, he had incidentally mentioned, yeah, they live by you know they're right across the street from the baseball field, and they have a sign that says Modern Microfilm Company on their porch. Uh, and I had tucked that away and uh, during our conversation, but. Um, I didn't have much um, contact with Reverend Walter. I mean, well, Cuthbert. Yeah, Reverend Cuthbert. After that, okay. So it was basically just one, one, one conversation you essentially had with him. There was that, and then somehow I can't remember, but I had gotten a hold of him after years later or afterwards. I maybe, maybe he had gotten my address and wrote to me. Maybe he sent me, oh, now I recall of it. He sent me a tape with him talking <laughs> talking to me on it. Oh, interesting. He had heard over in England about my leaving the church and uh, wanted to just to briefly talk to me. I think that was our only one more. It was a tape. I probably have it somewhere here. Um was he aware of the work that you were doing as well, or he had just heard it? You I don't. I don't think I had published anything yet. Okay, so he heard you left, and then was he trying to then like convert you to Christianity at this point? Was that I think? Well, yeah, I think he did. I think he did. 
uh-huh. you know, but not strongly. Right. But I think he did. Oh, yeah. but, okay. Well, he was just doing what evangelicals do, right? So, uh, you, just so f- you folks know, Elam is a uh, primary, it's a Pentecostal denomination that's primarily based in uh, Great Britain. It's relatively small, but pretty influential there. Um, and there, I do believe there's a handful of congregations here in the United States as well. Kind of an interesting uh, group. Um, there were some Pentecostal revivals that were happening in the, the early 20th century that kind of corresponded with what was happening in Azusa Street in Southern California as well. So interesting history, if you all want to look into that, it's an interesting church. So um, Dan, I guess we uh, covered a lot of territory. Uh, You know, I've mentioned before that, you know, I've been reading you for decades, uh, watching your videos. Um, You're just one of the most influential people in my uh, journey of my little own personal study uh, of this history. I guess I just want to ask, do you have any, um, perhaps any final words that you would like to share with my audience? Uh, I don't know what along what lines. Oh, just as, uh, well, I guess, okay, let's say put us in this kind of, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Um, I guess if you were to say to somebody um, who's interested in studying the history of Mormonism, um, and let's say they don't know a whole lot about it, perhaps you could give them some guidance on what materials and resources they would use. And of course yours, uh, and maybe you could recommend a few good starting points for them. And then just, uh, just how to maybe best way to kind of fully engage Mormon history as somebody who maybe doesn't really know a whole lot about it. Yeah. Well, um, of course, uh, I'm all about studying Mormon history. Uh, I'll encourage anybody to study Mormon history from whatever point of view they want to study it. I, I don't have any, like, uh, I don't like um, segregate people from my uh, study. I talk to anybody that's interested in Mormon history, believers, non-believers. I don't try to deconvert anybody myself. I'm not a deconverter. I'm not really interested in that. I'm just interested in Mormon history. And I want to get and promote it uh, no matter what people study. I mean, there's so many non-controversial subjects to study in Mormon history as well, you know, and I'm all for studying those non-controversial, not everything has to be, you know, uh, studying just Smith either, you know, but I would say that if uh, my materials are probably uh, going to be serious uh, kind of studies, deep dives into subjects, uh, the nitty-gritty, kind of what some people call forensic analysis of sources and things. I'm into the sources. I love the sources. I just love getting into the library and holding those documents and looking at them and uh, things like that. Um, But um, if anybody wants to know about the problems or or they have doubts and they want to know if there's a problems and I would recommend and, uh, Jerry Reynolds Jeremy Reynolds uh, you know the CES letter kind of thing that that's more of a polemical thing that I don't really get into but it's a quick way to introduce yourself to some problem areas if you if you feel that you're seeing those kinds of things and you really want to um, confirm uh, or validate those kinds of feelings. 
but if you're not, I would, you know, if you read Bushman, that makes me happy too. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, I wish everybody have a happy journey <laughs> wherever yeah. it leads you. Uh, we're all on a journey, and um, I have my personal conclusions, but I try to be a scholarly and, and neutral uh, uh, with the sources, as honest with the sources as, as I possibly can. Um, well, I want to thank you so much. You know, just even just throw something like this. And like, if you want an introduction to Joseph Smith, your Remini's book's a good place to go. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd say stay away from the anti-Mormon stuff. Uh, personally, as an evangelical, I think a lot of it's, well, I just, I, I try to stay in, let's try to stay within the scholarly community. And there's a lot of garbage that evangelicals put out. Now, of course, the Tanners, the materials they put out, they would be a good introduction too. But again, they get really deep into the weeds as well. So if you just want a basic introduction, this is a good place to start. And then just start your journey there. And then just take whatever uh, leads to you. It took the, it was the Arnold Freiburg paintings for me as a seven or eight-year-old boy that kind of got me <laughs> involved in this journey. So, uh, but it's a fascinating story that the, the story of Mormonism is the story of America. It has so much going for it. And it's so fascinating. I just tell people it's an interesting story just in and of itself for its own sake. It's worth studying. So I want to thank you, Dan, for coming on my program. Uh, you're welcome. Anytime. Yeah, we're going to have you back, man. And uh, I just want to remind my audience to like and subscribe. And don't forget to hit the notification button to be informed when there will be a new uh, episode. Uh, everybody, uh, it's, we're, going to get, we're going to be in 2022 soon. You'll probably see it when it's 2022. Hopefully we're all here. And you had a happy new year. And God bless. <laughs>